Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment. I check all the feedback myself, and it really means a lot to hear from you guys every time I'm able to put out a new episode. I truly appreciate all the kind words and support you've given me since I launched this show earlier this year. Today's guest is one that I think you guys will really enjoy. It was an awesome conversation about football, of course, but also life in general and some of the important themes and topics in life uh, because this individual, Tamba Hali, former Chiefs outside linebacker, has lived an amazing life, let alone uh, having an amazing athletic career, which of course he did as well. But Tamba's story begins in Liberia, Africa, which is where he was born. And he was born at a time when his country was going through a civil war. And at the age of 10, he's relocated to the United States to escape that civil war where thousands of people were dying and violence was within a whisper of the places where Tamba lived and and grew up. And so he came to the United States and, and lived with his father, who was a chemistry professor and high school teacher in the New Jersey area. And he proceeded to become an elite athlete, a tremendous pass rushing defensive end who went to Penn State and became an All-American in 2005. Uh, He was then a first-round pick, number 20 overall, in the 2006 NFL Draft by the Kansas City Chiefs. He played his entire career in Kansas City, which is something you don't see too often these days, so that's a feather in his cap for spending his entire career with one organization. He made the Pro Bowl in six straight seasons from 2010 to 2015, and twice during that span he was named second-team All-Pro, once in 2011 and once in 2013. He had six seasons with eight or more sacks, and he finished his career with 89.5 sacks, which ranks tied for 53rd in NFL history. Now, as I mentioned, Tamba's story is remarkable on and off the field, because in addition to all that I've mentioned so far, he's also a terrific ambassador and philanthropist for his home country, of Liberia. He's done a lot to give back to them, including during the Ebola crisis, he donated money and time to team up with Heart to Heart International in Kansas City, and they built a clinic in Monrovia, Liberia, that had 70 beds for patients with Ebola, and there were more than 2,000 deaths from the disease at that time, and so Tamba's generosity and willingness to give back really helped them and really helped the country um, where he grew up. And, And now his new project is he's trying to build a school in Liberia. He's trying to focus on kids that are very far behind in math and reading because the average learning curve and learning curriculum for young children in Liberia is so far behind kids in the United States. And that's what Tamba noticed when he moved here and grew up here and, you know, started to build a family here in Kansas City. And he's trying to create a, a better Liberia for the future. That's the quote that he gave at the time the plans for his school were announced. And they're in the process of raising money, trying to put everything together and make sure that in the future they can have a school there that reflects the appropriate uh, educational growth rate for the young kids um, and make sure that they get the best possible education that they can thanks to a lot of time and resources and, and just overall uh, giving spirit that Tamba has in, in making sure his country 
is the best it can possibly be. In addition to that, he's also just a, a fascinating guy because he has a music career as well. He's recorded a number of rap songs and albums. He has his own uh, record company, and he works with up-and-coming producers and rappers from Africa. And so he's just an extremely well-rounded, uh, very intelligent, just a fascinating guy to talk with. And so this was a great conversation because we touched on so many different topics from the X's and O's of football to uh, the difficulties and the frustrations and the challenges and the rewards associated with giving back to his home country of Liberia and just everything about um, you know what it's like to, to basically have a life that's split between two countries. One, the United States, where everyone is so fortunate and for the most part, everybody has enough to get by. And then another, where he was born, Liberia, that struggles on a daily basis. And so it was just a really great and interesting and nuanced conversation with somebody uh, who's clearly intelligent, who clearly has, you know, a lot of his priorities in order and, and tries to make sure that, you know, he leaves this world better than when he found it. Uh, one quick note before we get into the interview, Tamba wanted to do this interview over Zoom, which was awesome because we got to see each other and interact with facial expressions and things like that, which was really fun. Um, but I had a little bit of trouble with the audio. I had never recorded a podcast through Zoom before. So Tamba's audio sounds fine and perfect and clear, but the microphone on my end, I had some trouble with the setting. So my audio sounds a little echoey because the microphone wasn't picking up properly, but certainly nothing that will prevent you guys from listening. And again, Sorry about that one minor inconvenience, but like I said, Tamba's audio sounds crystal clear, and I think you guys will really enjoy what he has to say. So without further ado, let's get into a conversation with former Chiefs outside linebacker, Tamba Hali. Well, Tamba, thank you so much for carving out a little time. I appreciate you making some opportunity to chat with me here. This this will be a lot of fun. And, you know, the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, as somebody who has family, you know, in different parts of the world and everything, what have the last, you know, few months or this year been like for you with everything going on and everything happening? Has it been uh, challenging to monitor everything going on with your family and friends back home in Liberia? Yeah, I, I'll say it's been challenging because at first I was going back and forth, going to Liberia and um, trying to establish some kind of precedence there. I'll try to do a school there. Um, but uh, it's it's been different because it, it kept me here with my family here. We've gotten much closer, my fiance and I, my children. It, it made me pay attention to them more. And, um, <laughs> Let me, let me step up maybe <clears throat> it's it's made me pay attention to my family a little bit more than I was paying attention to them and I was doing more music um but I, I think you know again I'm I always account most of my my life to um God and I think God kind of just got me in the right direction and you know focused me more on what's important, which was my family here and helping my family here and, and, and getting closer to him, to be honest. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You know, I'm no stranger to, you know, what life is like for you guys in the NFL, having covered the Packers for a handful of years in Green Bay. And I know that, you know, for parts of the year, it's such a demanding job that you don't get to spend as much time with your your wives and your kids and your family members so is it kind of um is it unique and enjoyable now that you get to be around them so much more than than you would during a normal year yeah for me it's 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 it, like I was so used to be in in the world doing something being busy that I wanted to stay busy I wanted to you know now start a music career and 
it was almost like backwards and God had to smack me in my face and said, but you, you know, these guys who's doing music are broke. You already, you know, surpassed them in a way and you got to kind of use the assets in a, in a way to help others. And it brought me back to reality and there were things I was doing wasn't right in my life and I straightened everything out and it just made me appreciate every second with my fiance. We we're getting married here and next within this month and every second with the children we had and it just it made sense so much more and so COVID's done some good some goods and some bad but I think it's done uh, it's had a greater cause on me and, and how I'm developing as a you know after football you know when it when it comes to your inspiration for music. I read a quote from you where you said a lot of the music that you write is based on the concept of love. And, you know, I imagine that includes family, that includes women, that includes all different kinds of love because there are so many different types. And I wonder if a year like this, that's so challenging for a lot of people and with so much going on, does, does something like that, does that influence um, the type of music that you want to make? Does it, does it uh, play into the creative process at all? Yeah, uh, it always do. Um, it, it, there's a fine line in, in glorifying yourself and then there's a when you're kind of trying to reach the mass in, in how things are progressing you you, you kind of use the what's happening now especially having if you have a good producer as I do he's able to help kind of you know shape what he sees in you and how you see the world to come up with uh, really cool lyrics to express yourself um in those in those uh, areas of love of of I wouldn't say too much lust at this time because sure. you know no one is looking toward if people are they're kind of confused because the world is spinning so fast and no one knows what tomorrow is going to be like so it's more inspirational for people to hear uh, true true lyrics pertaining to what's happening in this time right now how would you describe the the difference in, in the response or the impact that you've had in Liberia? One, in terms of what your athletic career has done for Liberia, in terms of the, the money you've been able to give back to the country. And then on the other side, how is your music received over there? And what does that mean to them from a cultural element? I had to slow the music down there because they were really, really liking it. Um, and uh, as I'm trying to do things in the country, I also think that I'm going to be met with people who are not happy about that. Um, so I had to slow it down, but they love the music. Um, the last song I released there was called Emergency. I mean, it just it resonated with everyone. And, but I slowed everything down because it just seems like I was going, I was going through some spiritual battles. Um, um, and it didn't seem right for me to be doing music at the time. And I think, you know, God was saying, I can do all of these things with you, but you know, you may be taking it the wrong way. You may want to glorify yourself, you, you know, because you're standing on stage, everybody's looking up to you. And as far as helping the country and where they, in, in the things I wanted to do, again, I had to learn that you got to do those things on the hush because there are, there, there's a sickness in the country. People don't want the country to succeed. They don't want, they don't want to see a, a better Liberia. And you have people like me who want to see a better Liberia, but for whatever it's worth, there's, there's a culture there that's been established over a long period of time, where probably way before I came around. 
that they just want to suppress the people and oppress them and keep them down. So anything that I'm trying to do now or will do in the future, we'll have to, you know, kind of be in a way that, you know, people move in silence, you know, <laughs> and I'll have to move in silence in that type of manner just to get things done. Um, and then over time, you know, you'll hear about it. Just like any, any, any great work, it wasn't publicized too much because it, they knew that it was going to be met with challenges. And right. Yeah. You know, you, you've already done so many great things there in terms of, you know, the clinic you set up during the Ebola crisis with Heart to Heart International and now trying to build a school. Um, you know, what is it like to to be trying to do all these great things and give back, but then be met with some of that resistance? Like you said, does it lead to conflicting feelings for you? It does. Um the truth is, the truth is you need other people to be along while you're doing it. And yes, I have the assets and I can go in and just do things, but I still, I still need the resources. I still need good people, people with integrity that, you know, if I establish anything and I pull myself away, can it still sustain itself over time? So, you know, you're going to be met with that idea and you, you have to have the right people around you. And most people, in Liberia are, are really starving. So anything you put down, they will, they will take advantage of it for all the wrong reasons. So it, it, it's, it's a working process. I think, I think you, because of my going and coming and going, I, I had to straighten myself up too and realize, okay, you have to be in the right frame of mind to be doing this. And once you can, once you can have yourself good and you go back, you may be able to have a better hand on things because there are a lot of people there that, that wants to do what I'm trying to do. And it's almost like I'm coming in and stepping on people's toes. You know, I'm like, there are people who've been trying to do it, but don't have the means. And it's like me being there is a huge threat to what they want to get accomplished and their goals. So, you know, as I said, I think it's more on the side of move in silence, get things done calmly without people noticing, without publicizing it. And I think there's a lot to say about that. I think you know, just like law firms, there are law firms all around the country. They don't go and publicize their, their firm on right. TV all the time. But when you find out who they are, they're very powerful and they know how to get things done. Well, exactly. Because in some respects, if if someone's trying to be, you know, a little bit of a philanthropist and have their philanthropic efforts, but at the same time, they're only doing it to bring attention onto themselves, then that kind of, in some ways, defeats the purpose of it. Now, obviously, their money is still going to where it's going, but if they're seeking attention to themselves, then you, you question kind of what the um, what the true intentions are. So, you know, what what is kind of the, the status of the school that you want to build, and, and how do you try and go about doing something that's that big, you know, on a, on a silent level, like you said, moving silently? Well, what I did was I shut everything down. And I said, let, let's start over. Let, let me fix me. Let me fix myself because I saw a lot of handouts and I was feeding a lot of people with, with resource, like money, trying to get things done, but wasn't getting anywhere. And I said, well, if I want to do this, I have to do this uh, with my mind all being into it, my heart all being into it. I shut the music down and I said, again, if I want to do this and I'm doing music, people may t t all take it for the wrong reasons. Now, I love doing music because I thought it was going to be a good tool to publicize what we're doing right. and, bring and bring attention to it so people are able to donate. But 
and you know, so kind of what Akon kind of did, but I don't know how he went about it. So I shut it down for a bit, and and I, and and I'm just looking at it and just trying to figure out a, a better game plan. If if I want to do that, how to do it? I spoke with um, people from um, uh, the Hall of uh, the Hall of Famer. What's his name? His son. He's doing. He does Water Boy. Uh, Chris. Uh, oh, Chris Long. Chris Long. I spoke with his people, his marketing people, and I wanted to know how they went about doing this whole Water Boy thing in, in uh, Tanzania, because I, I was part of it in, uh, in donating. So she said, you know, it's really hard. What you're trying to do is is probably the hardest thing because it's a school. You know what we're doing is we find people down there who wants who wants to do these things and then we donate the money to them and they go about doing it and we publicize it as if you know as if Chris is always going to be involved that way but he takes a trips down there once a year brings the guys but he's not as involved like people may see it that way and I said okay but she's like you know I would love to see how you do because you want to be involved the country is not as safe as you would like it. Um, the news that comes out of Liberia is terrible. Um, just this past election, there's been four four different people within the government just, you know, killed, and and wow. there's no law. There's no law and order. There's no one there to say, hey, you know, these people are going to be held responsible, whatnot. So everything just goes under the radar. So those are all my fears. Saying, I could be in a country trying to do good, but people will be out there just trying to make sure that this guy's not going to survive the storm. Wow. So, yeah, all of those things. And then the fact that I do music and I, and I don't want to bring that attention to myself, but it's, it's to bring, it's to just bring awareness to the country. Like, Hey man, we got talent here. We got people here. We, we want to help in this, in this area. But then again, that becomes a, that kind of becomes like a threat to the people who are there eating in a, in a certain manner and no one is disturbing them. And Tamba is kind of disturbing that. So. Interesting. That's so much to navigate. You know, it's like, it's not, it's something that you would think would be so simple, you know, trying to do charitable acts and, and improve infrastructure and make things better. And yet it's almost like you're, you're met with all these waves and mountains and things that you have to go over. I don't think I would have expected that. Um, until you explained it. And, and I imagine it's, I don't know, it, it's got to be, uh, in some respects, it has to be a little disheartening, honestly, because you, you're trying to just do everything you can and, and it's not being accepted sometimes. Yeah, I, I have to accept what's, what's there and adapt to how they do things. Um, you know, because I first came in and I, I was going to put $500,000 towards uh a poultry farm because they were Im importing chicken mm -hmm. and i said well how are you importing chicken in liberia like you can grow it but someone has come through the government and somehow figured a way that they don't need to grow their own chicken they should import it so me trying to even do that it, it becomes a high risk right that, you know even if i did that somebody might come and seize it so even my agents had to address it with me and said, Tambo, you, when you cross the, the Atlantic, you're dealing with a different beast. Yeah. America has a structure where, you know, there's checks and balances over there. People are making money and no one is bothering them for taxes or whatever. So, yeah, it's it's almost 
move in silence. If I want to get things done, do it at mm. a small scale, move in silence. Don't, don't be too loud. Yeah, you, yeah, do music sometimes, you know, because it's the time that I'm in, but it's not, it shouldn't be my biggest focus. It should be more on the side of, if I want to help, help my family, if I can help my family that's here in this country and we can govern them to a, to a better way of, of thinking and education, it could be of a, a great help. And uh, things that I've been involved in lately is just consistently doing jujitsu. Yeah. So that's a, that's another thing that I feel that if I am in the country, I could I could be of great help, uh, just developing people in 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 that side of thinking. Jiu-jitsu is not just for martial art purpose, but for the mind. Just you know how to let go and you know survive in, in any 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 type of environment. Well, you know, I, I talked to a couple guys that were that came through the Packers locker room and some of them trained mixed martial arts and, you know, spoke about the importance of it in terms of the skills it developed, the mentality it developed. Um, you know, I know that's something you did for a large chunk of your career. Um, in what ways did jujitsu help you both physically and mentally, like you said? Um, physically, leverage, um, being able to, you know, engage with the person, but feel where I'm able to. I guess take advantage of him quickly. And uh, jiu-jitsu is so precise. It's like a clock. If you know where to turn, or it's like a trying to unlock something. If you know how to turn the key instead of trying to pick it. Yeah. Uh, and that helped me. Uh, it helped with my conditioning and helped uh, with my mental side of the game. Um, we learned to be able to play in. Uh, while, while, while rolling, we can roll from any position. Right. And we usually roll from the worst position. Like I always like to be on the bottom. So if you know how to work from the work worst position, you know, to the top, <laughs> you, you could do pretty well for yourself. And it's like Helio, he, that was how he learned being in the worst position, always being on his back. The back, if, if someone got your back, that's the worst you can be in. You're, right. you're not fighting with anything. So it kind of helps you understand how to do it from any position, from any, and if you translate it to football, you can you can be playing, you can be comfortable at, at defensive end, but maybe they'll put you a linebacker and you have to drop, and you, and you, you know, know, know about coverage as I did. And you're able to adapt to it quickly and, and, uh, and, and do well. Um, how does it translate to life? Um, it's huge. Um, you're going to be faced with different personalities, different people, and you're going to do business with people who are not good people. And the way you negotiate with these people, the way you go about your business with them, it can save you, you know, it can save lives or it could turn against you and for whatever it's worth, because there are good and bad people out there. And, it, and some people mean well, and some people just don't mean well. Some people just don't want others to survive. Some people don't want to see you around. And it's, in football, it's not like that. We all want everyone to do well. And in life, it's a whole different ball game. So jujitsu kind of teaches you how to let go, not to be so attached. If you're doing something and it seems to not be working, let it go. Go, you know, try from try something else. You know, you might find your your, your calling. How um, how difficult was it for you to go from that? Four three defensive end with your hand on the ground to to being a stand up outside linebacker. I mean, you know, obviously you made it look easy by the end for year after year after year. But 
for some guys, that's not an easy change. It's not easy because as a defensive end, you're only playing with technique. Oh, I got the five technique. I got the six technique, the, the eight, the nine. And that's it. And you go forward. Um, when you now is standing up, you have to know coverage. You have to know what you have to knowing the defense. You have to be able to understand that if the receiver comes this way, what coverage you're going to be playing. If there's three receivers, who you're going to be playing, one or two or three. If, if you're depending on the defense, you're going to have to be dropping in a certain if it's man, how you play man. Right. And then uh, what kind of man is it man from you outside is you, you have to keep outside leverage or inside leverage. Um, if it's zone, you know, how far between the hashes you're supposed to be dropping, you know, all of those things that comes over time from watching film and sitting with the coaches is not easy at all. It takes a lot of work. Um, obviously, I love what, uh, rushing a passer, but when you can have a defensive end or a pass rusher, who is willing to drop in coverage, you, you're able to scheme better because they may always want to turn the protection to the to the be better pass rusher, but now he's in coverage and then your blitzes are working. So it, it, it's not easy, but I think it's doable if the person loves the game. Are there guys that you watch on Sunday now, you know, that, that jump out to you and you say, man, I love the way this guy plays as an edge rusher? Ah, uh, it's been a while. Um, uh, I, I watch. I watch the Chiefs. I watch uh, Brady, um, but I haven't seen people like Dwight Freeney. You know, like that was my favorite pass rusher. So it's been a while. Sure. I, I think. I, I think there's some big guys in the league right now, like really tall and athletic guys that's getting it done. I just don't know who they are. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I haven't. I haven't seen. Justin Houston, you know, Justin was just so strong. He'd take you and put you right in the quarters back laughing. You know, I just haven't seen seen guys like that. Um, Aside from the uh, the obvious spin move, what did you like about Dwight? I think Dwight ran a 4-3. He was 265, 70 pounds. And he took one move that no one knew, and he made it his own. So he can spin. He can run right past you. He can take you and put you in the quarterback lap. He had leverage over you, and he was relentless. Like, every down, talk about pass rush, he and Mathis is coming off the edge every single down. It's If those quarterbacks, if they, if Dwight and, 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 uh, and Mathis was playing in the league now, they, they would have, like, 200 sacks. Wow. Because these guys like to hold the ball. And so long you hold the ball, these guys that's coming off the edge just knew how to get to the passer. It wasn't... Like they were at the passer all the time. It's just the guys that they played against were really, really good quarterbacks in you know, the time they were around. So it wasn't gonna be that easy. But I guess it's the time and era. Yeah. When you when you have two really good edge rushers like that, one on each side, and you've been part of those tandems as well in Kansas City, I know you got it's not like you're playing off each other in terms of DBs passing off routes, but can you play off of the, the edge rusher on the opposite side from you? Yeah, that um, Justin and I, that's basically, basically what we did. And you can see how it reflected with uh, Marcus Peters when he was there. I mean, his best seasons was when he had, uh, you know, a couple good pro bowlers on the team. And Justin and I, we're, we, we came up with plans to just be able to flush the quarterback. Like, he, he cannot just stand there. 
And there are times we'll look at each other and I'll be pointing to the ground or I'll point to me or I'll point to the sky and that that's signaling what I'm doing. And he knows exactly if I'm doing that, he should plan on doing the counter of what wow. I'm doing. Yeah, because it's, if he holds that ball for a second, he gets the sack. Or if he comes inside and I said, I'm going, I'm going to take a ball rush and he just stays outside and the quarterback chooses to come inside, I, I'm going to get the sack or the guy or it will be Don Terry or um, Bailey, one of those guys. Yeah. Um, so we, we kind of knew how to play with each other. We knew it wasn't just a one man go get a guy. It was like, yo, we, we, we could do this together. We don't care who eats so long one person is getting it. And that's really I mean, fascinating because, you know, when I was in Green Bay, I had a chance to be around Clay Matthews and Julius Peppers, you know, two guys that were great getting after the quarterback in their own right. But I don't think either of them ever mentioned, you know, communicating with hand signals or letting the guy on the opposite side know what you're doing. I mean, maybe they were doing that and they just didn't tell the media. But I thought I think that, that's really fascinating. Like, how did you, um, you know, was there a, a coach that encouraged you guys to do that? Or did you just decide, hey, it's easier with, with the both of us than one on, you know, just one by ourselves? We were close. Uh, Justin and I were close. So when Justin came in, I was in my prime and he was watching me and, you know, and, and boosting my confidence and, and liking how I played. So then when I was able to work alongside him, he already had the attributes. Now he just got the technique down and we were we had losing seasons. He and I would get nine, 10 sacks. Right. And it would be, it would just be based on uh, how we're going to work with each other. And we knew we had to get sacks in the first half because we knew in the second half we'll be losing, you know, that's how bad we, we knew how to work with each other. We was working with each other, getting sacks in the first half because we'll say, Hey, in the second half, they're going to run the ball. Right. So, so we got close and we we're always working hands together. We were always, thinking about ways to uh, get to the quarterback, always watching film and seeing how they turn the line. You know, that that alone, just how they, they're setting, you know, really good offensive linemen, they just set, some of them would just set on levels, knowing that you're not going to pass. It's almost like a like an art of war thing. Like, we're just yeah. going to put this level here and that level here. So if he beats us, we'll be waiting for him here. <laughs> well, I saw, I saw a really great quote from you where, uh, or excuse me, it was from Justin. And Justin said, one of the things that Tombo taught me is that uh, pass rushing is a game within a game. And it's not just one snap at a time. It's setting things up quarter by quarter, half by half, so that you've laid traps and you, you know, done all these things so that you can have success when, when it matters most. And, you know, I'm curious for, for everything that you gave to Justin, who was that for you when you came into the league? Who was the one that was teaching you some of the tricks of the trade? I uh... Nobody, to be honest with you, I got my mentorship from my my coach, um, Larry Johnson, senior, when I was in uh, college, and then yep. when I got to the league, Jared Allen left pretty quickly, and he he and I didn't get a chance to work with each other, you know, in the off season, or even during the season, because he was opposed that I was taking Eric Hicks, Hicks spot. And Eric didn't like that. Eric was his friend, so and that's how the league goes. And, uh, Joe Kim uh, came to us when Todd Haley became coach and he took on to me and Romeo Cornell was really fond of me, my rushing and Joe Kim was just teaching me how to use my hands, you know, my hips and my hands. He's like, 
you know, there's a lot of things you just don't know, but if you just understand how to use your hips and how to use your hand and, and study film, and I would say Joe Kim was the one that kind of, because Joe was working, Joe had worked with uh, Taylor. Um, Jason Taylor. Jason Taylor years prior. He said, when I got Jason, he was so small. And I, and I had to utilize what his best attribute was, where was his hands. He had long arms. He said he taught him how to put the arm in the guy's chest and just get around quickly. Um, when I was watching, uh, you know, some of your, your highlights, you know, getting ready to, to chat with you today, one of the moves that you used that I really liked was there were times where you would rush and you would actually get like two or three yards beyond the quarterback, knowing that they would step up in the pocket. And then you knew that you were fast enough to kind of shuck the tackle to one side and get back up field. So your rush almost looked like a straight line and then a V shape back to the quarterback. And I was wondering if, if that was something you did intentionally throughout your time, or it just worked out that way when guys stepped up in the pocket. You do it intentionally because you know, his drop, he's going to drop at a certain, he's going to drop back to a certain distance to encourage you to come there. Right. The tackle is always going to feel like, yeah, he's going upfield. That's he's just going to ride. So the tackles are happy for you to try to run upfield because the quarterback is going to step up in the pocket. And most of the time, if, if you're on the right side and you go too far upfield, he got that whole left side, in, you know, facing the defense to right. work with. So right. in my mind, it's okay, let's just go ahead and go upfield and then we'll come back. Let's go upfield, we'll come back because we just know for whatever it's worth, he's going to have to step in the pocket and come out that way. Um, I mean, it's the game within the game, it, it only makes sense that you watch film and realize that you're not going to get sacks throughout the game unless right. the team is just bad. There are pretty there there are times of the game that you know you can get sacks. Like you know, it's hard to tell you now but I, I just knew between between the 30 and the 50. Okay. Between that line if they're coming out or going in, that's a chance for them for you to get sacks cuz he may have to hold the ball a little longer. If if they're too close to the end zone, you, you can't rush a certain way because if you rush too far upfield, these, especially these young quarterbacks who love running, they're going to go right where you're coming from. So now you right. have to change your rush up to more of like a bull rush, tight rush to keep him in the pocket. But there are just certain times you know that you have to do this so he gets comfortable with you doing this and do that, get comfortable with you doing that. And he buys into it. Sadly, that's just the human nature. Yeah. It's like, oh, this guy does this. That's what he's always going to do. So once you do it, you know you have a counter coming on later in the game, but you got to know when to do it because that's just the game within the game. <laughs> sure. No, I don't know. I don't know if this is more based on the the offensive tackles or what, but you had some amazing games against the 49ers and Alex Smith. Was there anything about Alex that you just felt you had a good read on that you were able to have a couple multi-sack games against him? We knew Alex would hold the ball. You know, because he was always hesitant, you know, coming in the game. We just knew like early in my career, we just knew he would hold the ball. And like one sack I got on Alex, I didn't all I did was flip my hip and he had a three count step and he was supposed to throw the ball. He held it. And I, I'm like, I'm looking right at him. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not supposed to get a three, you know, three, three step drop sack. But I flipped my hip so quick and um, I forget the tackle. Uh, Thomas maybe or no I forget him but 
the guy I probably came in the league with, um, he, you know, he was there. And I, all I did was flip my hip and I was looking at Alex and I'm like, he's still holding the ball. And I get, get a sack. But we knew Alex would hold the ball. Just like Rivers. Rivers, we know he will hold the ball. For whatever it's worth, those type of quarterbacks, you rush even much harder because, you know, like if you hold the ball, we got to get there. Yeah. You know, those guys, people like Peyton, they're timing us getting there. So Peyton, when you rush him, he always watched to see how far you are after he throws the ball. So he knows, like, it's so hard to, to rush him because he's watching you and he paying attention to his receivers. Right. There are other quarterbacks that's just, you know, are, are going to hold the ball for whatever. And if that's the case, we work harder because we know once we beat this guy, it's just this guy we got to get down. So would you, as a player, would you take more pride in beating certain offensive tackles that you had a lot of respect for or, you know, being able to sack certain quarterbacks like a Peyton Manning who are so smart that they made it difficult for you? I'd say it's always the battle with before the quarterback because those guys is just as athletic. Yeah. The fact if the guy can block you and you still get a sack in that game, you don't feel good throughout the day because you know you got stoned, bro. Sure. This guy beat, he beat you all game. You you <laughs> locked up into one of those sacks. So there are games where I felt like I, I was beating my tackle and I never got a sack. And I wasn't happy I didn't get a sack, but I I, I go home happier knowing that the guy couldn't block me. Right. Just, he just couldn't block me. And so I take more pride in, in beating the, the guy in front of me because I study him more. Is there anyone that stands out to you just off the top of your head as one of the best tackles you ever faced? Yeah, Joe Thomas. I mean, I, I, I played it against him in college. He was able to block me then. I played against him in the league. He was able to block me then. So the times I was able to get some win on him, obviously, you know, there's some holding going on. But of course. Joe was so good at what he did. He will hold you really well inside. And it's like, if you can't be dramatic about it, you would never get a call. But yeah, Joe, Joe Thomas was so good at what he did. He was so smart and he was so strong. You look at him now on TV, he looks like a small guy. I know he's lost so much weight. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Um, you know, one of the things that, that just jumped out to me right away about your career is just how insanely durable you were. And like I said, I was in a locker room for four years and I saw all the various injuries that Clay Matthews would pick up or, you know, Nick Perry was breaking his hand constantly as a rusher. And, you know, there would be times where uh, he'd have shoulder problems because it'd get caught under a tackle's arm or something. And so how did you go, you know, almost your entire career missing only four games up until your final season in the league? How do you do that? Uh, I love the game. So it's for, for whatever it was worth, I worked hard at it. And even when I get hurt, I would, I would first give it doubt. I, I think that works in life. You first got to have doubt to then gain faith because it, 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 you can't just have faith. It's like, sure. well, where did you get it from? <laughs> you must be a special bunch. So I'll come in, I'll hurt myself on a Sunday. I'll come in and I'm like, I'm not playing this game coming up. And then I would hear guys start trying to talk me into it. I'm not playing the game. But then for whatever it's worth, I would switch it in my mind and start working in the tubs and running in the tubs and start, you know, just testing it out and seeing how I'm doing. And, and that I start gaining confidence as the week goes by and say, like, no, I'm going to play. Eventually, I'm going to play because I don't know. I love the game. I, I just I always wanted to play regardless of how I felt. And I always felt like I can do it at a high level. Um, but 
again, I will always accredit it to my faith. I, I won't lie. I think there's a covering over me somehow when I'm when I'm not doing when I'm when something isn't going well. Someone someone is there always. What's up, brother? Someone is always there watching me and and, and keep, keeping over me and, and pushing me somewhere where, where I should be going. And so long my heart's in it, and that's always where it comes from. So long my heart's in it, it, it works out. If my heart wasn't in it, I always I probably be like one of those guys and just baby it through. Yeah. But I always. So one of those years, one of those years where you were able to play 15 or 16 games, what was maybe one of the more painful things you had to push through or that you did push through just because you loved it so much? I remember um, early in my career, Tony Gonzalez had need me in my ribs because I was giving him a you know hard problem during during practice, and I think he just wanted to send a message, and he cracked one of my ribs. And uh, so I was out for like two, three weeks and then I had to come back and play. And it was like, every time you get off the ball, it's like, you know, someone stabbing you. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and it, it was tough, but once your adrenaline starts going and you feel like you can go, you go. I remember in college, I had high ankle sprains, two high ankle sprains. Coach Johnson said, we're going to put um, some boots on you and you're going to go. And I played nose tackle. And I was like, are you kidding? The whole game, I'm in pain. So I learned how to do it in college before I got to the league, how to play in the pain. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever, um, do you ever feel badly about how hard you hit a running back or a quarterback or anything? I mean, or is, or is a life in football train you that as long as it's a clean hit, you don't have to feel badly about it? But the running backs, no. I don't feel bad about the running backs because I got ran over by running backs. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Um, for the quarterbacks, it's an art. You know, the, the refs even will congratulate me how I wanted to sack the quarterback. And that's where I thought forcing fumbles was even better. You you know, they look at it better. Like, this guy doesn't come to hurt the quarterback. Right. He wants the ball. He's playing as if, like, he's on offense. He wants the ball. So, over time, I wouldn't hit I mean, if you're paying Manny, I will hit you hard because I sure. want you to get out of the game. <laughs> I don't feel sorry because you throw a lot of touchdowns and there's a lot of fans in our stands not happy. But yeah, I think, you know, when you become a really good pass rusher, you will learn the art of getting the ball out. Yeah. You don't really have to hit the quarterback because those guys are really small. I mean, they're, they're not they don't lift like us. They don't train like us. And you could end one of their, you can end their career, you know, based on a rush if, right. if you come in to really do damage. But when you learn how to sack the quarterback, you will realize that you can get so much more sacks by just reaching for the ball. He's never aware that you're coming right. in that close. So if you just, instead of hitting him, if you just reach for the ball, that's like a trifecta. And if you get it, you know, that's and they that's give you great. credit for the sack anyway, even if you, uh, you know, you strip the ball. So it's like the, you know, everybody wins. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I'm curious when when it comes to some of your teammates, one of the things I like to do on the on the podcast is ask guys about just some of the the more impressive teammates that they had a chance to be part uh, you know, of groups with. And, you know, I'm just wondering when a guy like Eric Berry comes into the league and everything that he can do. Um, was he as special as, as he looked on the field when you saw him every day in practice and in the meeting room? Was he just a special guy? Yeah, there are leaders. There are sometimes born leaders. Like we, 
like me, I, I had to develop over time how to lead, and I'm still trying to develop those traits. People like Eric Berry, like they are beyond their time. You know, when you meet him, his maturity, his uh, the way he looks at life, the way he goes about his business, you'll say, yeah. I mean, he looked up to us, but we looked up to towards him because we felt like this this guy know how how to talk. He knows what to say. He knows how to motivate. And then he knows how to turn it on and turn it off, as in we could be laughing with each other and then we have to turn it on. So very special human being. He was very talented. I was surprised. I think after the um, it was after the Oakland game when he couldn't catch a person because I've seen Eric run. We was at the Pro Bowl one time. He took off him and he they're chasing. And I'm like, whoa, these guys can fly. So when we were playing and he and this cancer thing came around in Oakland and I saw him, he couldn't catch someone. I said, damn, something's wrong. Right. I, yeah, I didn't. I would have never thought cancer. But that that's when, you know, we kind of knew something was wrong because Eric can catch when he first got in the league. He can catch it from anywhere. I don't care where you were. He would catch you. Yeah. And and, you know, it's unfortunate that how his his career unfolded. But special is the is the word. He's very special. What did you make of uh, Mr. Mahomes when he arrived in Kansas City? Patrick is different. You know, the word different really ex expresses him because you, you, you usually expect these guys to come in sounding different, you know, like sounding like a quarterback. <laughs> Let's start with his sound. <laughs> you know, sounding like... He does Patrick. have a unique voice. <laughs> oh, he, he comes in there and he sounds like one of these young kids and... He's not over his head. He just wants to play. You know, he's not even boastful about anything. He gets on the field and he's just, he he's picking us apart on our defense because our first team defense is going against scout teams. So he's right, scouting here. So he just comes in and he's, enjoy, he's enjoying it. And I'm excited. You know, I'm like, I get to play with this guy, but, you know, the reality is different for, the, for what happens after yeah. So, so if you were, so let's say you're, um, you know, let's say you're a member of the, the Raiders or the Chargers or somebody who's got to play him twice a year. How would you try and attack Patrick Mahomes if you're the rusher on the other team? I, so Patrick is good when he gets out of the pocket. Let's no be doubt. honest. Um, because he gets to be more explosive and he gets a vision on every receiver and he gets to choose because he can throw the ball well. So for, for as pass rushers, we'll do our best to keep him in the pocket we we'll want to close the pocket on him because we want to see if he can throw from a small space. When he has space to throw, he, th he does well. But, you know, I think that's not just for Patrick. That's any quarterback. When you close that pocket, there's a, there's a thing there saying it's too, you know, it's too tight. It's like, you know, it's too tight in here. So if, if I was any team playing the Chiefs, I would, I would choose to rush Patrick in a way where he stays in that pocket. Mm -hmm. don't rush upfield don't rush inside everyone use your best move to be able to compress the pocket and let's see if he can throw from that position and I, I think you could have success now let me be honest you're not playing against Patrick you're playing against Andy Reid so right <laughs> right and everybody knows that, you know, he has one of the more unique offensive brains in the league in terms of what he can do. And, you know, I, I just think it's watching what he does with Patrick and, you know, the rookie running back Edwards Hilaire. And then obviously everybody knows what Tyreek and Kelsey can do. It's almost it's it's like 
you can picture Andy Reid like Monday through Friday, just being like this little kid drawing stuff up. And he's so excited because he knows his weapons are better than everybody else's. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to play against Andy because he did it to us. And when I was there, um, we had, we had such a good defense. I mean, we scored seven touchdowns one year on the defense. So, but when we practice, he, he knows how to scheme every one of us. He, he knows how to scheme me. He knows how to scheme Justin. He, he was scheme DJ. And one time, I think in practice, he ran three different screens, like screen to the receiver, screen to the back, you know, because he's 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 scheming all the players. And it's right. like, oh, you guys think this is the guy that, that's going to be good? And I'll be running up field. So he, Jamal will catch the ball. He's gone, you know, or he will split it outside. I said, oh, okay, Tamba has to DJ. Jamal, we'll put Jamal as the second receiver because we know you guys have Tamba who has to cover Jamal. Right. That's not possible. It's like, so it's you know, so Patrick gets to have fun with a really great coach. Yeah. Um, we cannot take away that he has attributes that you know that not a lot of guys are going to have. Yeah. You know, he to play the game. A lot of guys are not loving the game. They're just probably going through the motion. And the kid loves the game and yeah. loves to lead his team and. He talks. If you're not serious, he comes out and, and just expresses himself on the field if you don't take it serious. Well, you brought up an interesting point there. I remember earlier you said you spent more time studying tackles than quarterbacks. So I'm curious, did you also spend time studying coordinators? Were you interested in what a coordinator liked to do or didn't like to do in certain situations? Or was that not something you paid too much attention to? Uh, we did because the coaches would make it very apparent that you know, the offensive coordinator that we're going against, this is what they like to do. So indirectly, we did. We knew uh, we had my coach, Gary Gibbs, is like a genius. Uh, he, he did most of our homework. He would come in and tell us the entire game plan that the coach we're playing against. And it, it's it's sad he's not coaching, but he could be a head coach if he wanted. But he was just a genius on defense. Yeah. He's the one, everything about the team we were playing and it was so easy for us linebackers. You remember, you, you got, I mean, you almost got four pro bowlers in that room. If yeah. you count Ford, you know, at the end of his tenure there. So yeah. and that's just one coach, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, we, we spent time with, with the coach, knowing what the, the coordinator coming in loves to do. Um, one of the coordinators that stuck out, I, I forget, he was a black coach. Uh, for um, coordinator for Cincinnati Bengals. Um, I forget Defense his name. Offense. Uh, offense. Okay. Um, I'm not sure who but, it was. It, I mean, Marvin Lewis was their head coach, obviously, but. There was another. Was yeah. Okay. There was another black. He was a black coordinator, offensive coordinator. What he loves to do is spread us out. Justin and I was always covering some slot receiver. And then he would run the ball. Got it. So he would basically go four wides and have you run and then run it. Yeah. yeah. Now I've got to tackle people in space. I got to run across the field. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, smart guys. I mean, they figure how to beat beat you because they know your best guys. But yeah, we, we, we study them, but study these tackles. If you can beat these tackles, it will make it, you know, it'll change the coordinator game plan. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Um, who was one of the toughest running backs you ever faced in terms of trying to tackle a guy because he was either so strong or so shifty or whatever the case may be? I think at the end of my career, uh, the kid from Tennessee, uh, he's he's just as big as me and taller than me. Oh, Derrick Henry. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, 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 I mean, I looked at, I sized the kid up. I said, are you serious? Am I supposed to, <laughs> am I supposed to hit this guy? Right. And imagine, imagine being a safety or a corner that has to try and do it if they get the ball out wide. Yeah, no, I mean, at the end of my career, coach was saying, uh, be, you're lucky if you can tackle him. He'll be telling us in the meeting. Yeah. This guy is a, yeah, I've, I don't know. Larry Johnson was one of the biggest uh, running back we, we've had. But I don't remember having someone in the league that big that I had to tackle. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, there was a kid from St. Louis. Mm. Steven Jackson? Yes. <laughs> I remember. I didn't even want to hit Steven. Well, Steven was one of those guys that, you know, he probably only ran about a four five five, but he ran so hard and he was so strong that he would just go right through you. And he was, I mean, you talked about earlier how, you know, you, you were on some teams that didn't win a lot of games and yet you put up good numbers. I mean, that was basically his whole career in St. Louis. Those were some really rough teams, but he was every year, 1300, 1400, whatever it was he was. And I, I've talked to him before um, his, his former position coach, came and was the running backs coach in Green Bay. So I called him once and he was just awesome explaining to me, you know, what the guy was like and what his study habits were. And, and so I, I know he was a very, very smart player in addition to being just a, a physical freak. The guy was big. I remember just squaring him up one time and I'm like, I'm waiting for the help. Just yeah. I had the leverage because I'm like, how can I hit this guy and not fall off? Yeah. He was just muscular and big. And it's like, yeah, I remember. How about the other end of the spectrum? Like a guy, I'm sure you played, you played Tomlinson a few times, right? When he was with the Chargers. Yeah, we enjoyed tackling him. You, well, well, I just meant like a guy that is not power-based, but he's more like he wants to get around you. Is that a similar challenge or? Uh, yes. You'll say guys like Sproles because they yes. can change, change uh, direction quickly. So if you're in space with them, it's just, it, it's, they're going to win. Um, but we, we know how to play against those type of guys. You just need to leverage them, let them choose their route, and then let your team come get the hit. Yeah. But tackle them in space one-on-one, it's not, it's not going to work. You got Sproles, and then you got the kid uh, who's on the sports network. Um, he, he played for California, uh, played for UCLA. Oh, uh, or USC, Reggie Bush? No. No. Uh, oh, Maurice Jordan. Jones Drew. Maurice Jones yeah. Drew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maurice, I forget all of these guys. I came in with them, but my yeah. mind is not there no more. But Maurice was just a ball. Yeah. I mean, he just runs the ball and he doesn't even look fast. He'll be running this way and then goes the other way. But yeah, he was hard to tackle too while I played. You know, I'll sort of wrap up with this because I know you've got other things to do today. But, you know, as somebody who loves the game as much as you do, and obviously you have a, a great mind for football as well, have you ever been interested in the coaching or the scouting route? Or does that just take up so much time that it would detract from some of the other things you're doing in life, like music and giving back to Liberia and your family and all that kind of stuff? No, I, I definitely would do coaching and uh, scouting. All of those things are – I know I have those cards – yeah, I came to this country when I was 10 and I've been in such a program that I felt like, man, I got a little bit of time to do anything I want to do. So let me do these things because I know I would probably not get to do them once I get serious with, you know, things that I know I will excel in. So it's I, I do have interest in it. And I, I think one thing I had, one thing that I have is to spend time with my family that mm -hmm. I want to say. Um, 
my dad didn't do with me because he was a teacher. Right. So he was busy teaching. So having these little guys and living in the times that we're living in now, I just I want to believe that it's it's destined for me to spend a lot of time with my family, a lot of time around my fiance and you know soon to be wife. Those things I need to like just have in green, have a foundation. And then once we're all confident and confident in what we have established, I think the support system will be there. If I say, Hey, I'm going to go coach. Hey, I'm yeah. going to go. And, you know, I, I, I just think it's step by step because I didn't get, I, I didn't get the chance to do those things. Yeah. I was too busy in football. So I, I don't get a chance to get married the way I should get married. I, don't, I got the chance now to spend time with the kids Right. Before you know Make it. Make sure you do that first before you go back into football and you <laughs> and you start losing your 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 time and you're at the stadium 12 hours a day again. So Correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, well Tombo, I really appreciate you carving out some time. This was awesome to pick your brain because I have so much respect for you not only as a player but what you do and what you stand for as a person. So, this was really fun for me and I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Me. Have a great day and hopefully you have a great wedding too. Oh, it'll be a mini Mooney. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Bye. Thank, thank you. So there you have it, a conversation with former Chiefs outside linebacker Tamba Hali. Um, I could go on and on about the things that I enjoyed in that conversation, but a couple of the things that jumped out to me that I'll just really, really remember are, you know, first and foremost, when he talked about some of the challenges of just trying to give back to his home country. You know, I never really considered that there would be people within a country like Liberia or another economically challenged country that would be resistant or hesitant or just skeptical of somebody, you know, trying to give back money and time and things like that. That had never really occurred to me. And so it was kind of, you know, interesting, but also, you know, disappointing in some respects to hear that those types of barriers and walls have come up when Tamba's simply trying to, you know, enrich and enliven the place where he spent the first 10 years of his life. And then, you know, from a football standpoint, I just thought it was fascinating to hear him explain some of the interplay between he and uh, Justin Houston, his teammate and fellow pass rusher there with the Chiefs, you know, the idea of hand signals and, you know, a player on one side doing something and a player on the other side doing the counter so that if the quarterback tries to avoid one of them, well, the other one is ready and waiting in a position that sort of counterbalances everything that the first guy did. That was really interesting to me and not something that I had heard a lot about before. So, you know, I really appreciated him being open and honest about that. And I guess you can do that when you're retired and it doesn't matter week to week anymore you know, what the opposing team might pick up on. But there were so many interesting things in that conversation, and I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I'm not sure if I'm going to have another episode prior to Christmas, so if I don't, I hope that everyone has a terrific and healthy and safe holiday season. Uh, Be sure to check out all the other episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. Please don't forget to leave a, a comment or a star rating if you happen to be listening on an Apple device, preferably five stars if you like the show. And once again, I hope everyone has a terrific holiday season. Please stay smart, stay healthy, stay safe. And until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.